Welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And uh, as always, if you have any questions or comments, you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com, kbmakel at aol.com, or you can leave them in the comments section on Podbean. So anyway, this is episode number 153, number 153. So, I got to get to a couple of things. Uh, first, as you probably know, there was a story in the, uh, um, made the national news media about a guy who bought a whole bunch of uh, rifle cases from the DOD, you know, the way they dispose of that stuff, the surplus property or whatever. And so he got these things home and he opens it up and lo and behold, there's a bunch of M16A2s inside. And, of course, I created quite a stir in the, you know, the gun enthusiast community. And most of it is, man, I wish that would have happened to me. I never would have said anything. I would have kept them. And and all the rest of that. Um, basically, people saying, boy, wouldn't it be lucky to open up a case and find a, you know, trove of these things. Um, what I can tell you is, here's here's the reality of all that. The reality is... Uh, those were government weapons the government has the serial numbers of those weapons they know they're missing they don't know where they are but they know they're missing um and the reason i know this is because you know the military loses weapons occasionally and uh, i remember one time i was stationed at a place called the national training center which is at fort irwin california and an m14 was after a rainstorm an m14 was recovered in the bottom of one of the they they call them wadis there, trying to give it a middle east flavor but it's actually an arroyo and these things are usually you know they're just they're they're kind of like dry creek beds that are cut into the into the desert and they usually have you know soft sand on the bottom well after it one of the very rare rainstorms in the desert um this thing was uncovered and was seen and, and picked up and they traced it to a national guard California Army National Guard unit which had lost it in the late 60s or early 70s I, I can't remember which and this was clearly this is about 20 years later so over 20 years later that this was uh, uh, this thing was recovered so you know they knew they, they had the data even in the pre-computer pre-internet days um, they had that number they knew who lost it and so you know had that let's just say that you know you're stumbling through the desert you find it and and lo and behold it, it might still be shootable maybe you replace the stock in a few parts but it's still shootable well if you get caught with that thing they're going to trace it back to the military and it's the same thing and it's probably even even easier to do with these in this day and age with these m16a2s um Obviously, a box that was supposed to go probably to refurbishment or to storage or something else wound up, or maybe even foreign military sales, who knows. Um, that box wound up mixed up with the boxes that were getting sold as surplus. And, uh, you know, there's, a, there's the receiving end of those weapons were whoever and wherever it was if they were supposed to get 100 m16 a2s and they get 93 
um, they're going to check the serial numbers against the list of the ones that they were supposed to get and know the numbers of the seven missing ones. And, you know, there's no way that you're ever going to be able to to not have that number traced. Just not going to happen. And in fact, you know, when you have that in your possession, uh, since it's a select fire weapon, and obviously it's not on the NFA, obviously it is not within any of the legal channels, uh, you're risking jail and a felony and everything else. So, you know, you what you're risking is all the rest of everything else you have, including your freedom, because um, it can carry a maximum 10-year sentence. And, you know, you might get that if they figure out that, hey, I knew I had these things and I was just waiting for them to cool off. The point is they'll never cool off. Uh, these things will be will always be contraband. They'll always be stolen weapons and they will be traced. And let me tell you something. Here's here's what they will do. They will go and they will say there'll be investigators who are assigned to this and they'll do the the deal. They'll say, yeah, they were put in one of these kind of cases. Well, lo and behold, a bunch of those cases were sold surplus. You know, they'll put two and two together and figure it out. Then they'll go around to the people who bought the cases saying, hey, can we look inside those? Because uh, we think we might have <laughs> we, we lost something. It may be in there. What I'm saying is, anyway, they will track down those weapons. They will figure out who has them or who they think has them. And then they're, they're, you, you won't get a moment's peace. I mean, they, they'll continually be on you. They'll know you have them. So, you know, the best thing to do whenever you find misplaced government weapons is to turn it back into them. Just turn it back into them, you know. Don't turn in six of the seven. <laughs> hey, I found a crate of seven. I mean six. No, don't do that. Don't do that. Um, you know, it just that serial numbered lower receiver is a problem. It, it is a problem. Um, nor would I recommend anybody to do anything weird like well I can just take all the parts I can do everything and then destroy the lower receiver and then put on a commercial semi-automatic only lower receiver and voila you know grad you know the the whole the badness is gone and and I have now six AR-15 A2s um, you know and there's no way the government's going to come and trace them and get them uh, I would not do that you get caught destroying that stuff I mean just because they will trace they'll know that you had the guns and then they'll know that oh wow and somehow this guy's got a like number of ar-15 a2s you know wonder how that happened um they'll they'll ferret it out so i would never risk everything i had getting into that kind of a beef as difficult as it is I would I would give them all back. I would call the call the army, you know, CID or call the nearest army base, the MPs, and say, "Hey, I got something over here. You guys need to come over and take these off my hands." You know, got left in a case. I just bought the plastic case. They came in. When I opened it up, these were in there. Take them away. Now that that's pretty clear cut. You know that that is pretty clear cut. Now, what if it's something a little different though? What if you buy one of these cases and you open it up and it's AR-15 A2s? They're semi-automatic. What What then? Maybe they belong to a 
defense contractor who went out of business and the box got mixed up with the military stuff. I, I can tell you in the in the confusion and havoc of Iraq, something like that could have very easily happened. Very, very easily happened. Um, we would <laughs> what we'd see is after every sandstorm, you'd see the uh, parking lot, and you would you would see you know because there were various places where uh, vehicles were parked, especially in the green zone. Th this was really in the green zone, and you would see vehicles that uh, that weren't moving; they were just there, and they had belonged. They were usually like up armored uh, Ford Expeditions, and they um, they were just left there by you know, security companies that had gone out of business because the State Department and other U.S. agencies, there weren't enough soldiers to protect everybody, so they hired private security contractors, you know, Blackwater types. Uh, but there was more than one company. There was more than Blackwater. There were there were lots of these companies. One of them was based in the U.K., at least one I know of was based in the U.K. Um, it's And so it's these guys were, were, you know, they had their equipment. When, when they lost a contract, Hey, they're not going to ship this. They're not going to ship these vehicles anywhere. And if they can't find anybody to buy them, they just leave them in place. And who who knows? Some of them are probably still sitting there. They've probably been hot wired by the Iraqis by now. But um, you know, so th this kind of stuff got got was everywhere. And there were all kinds of weapons. I would not be surprised if there were, you know, occasionally a box of weapons would show up at a at an army base somewhere that had been flown out of Iraq and they open it up and they say, Wow, there's a bunch of semi automatic AKs in here or there's Hungarian Browning high powers because that those were some of the weapons that they used to arm these guys. They all didn't have M fours. They would sometimes have M forgeries, which were semi automatic looked like an M four, but they were semi automatic only or they would have, you know, stuff that they had just bought, like Wasser-style AKs. You know, the kind, the kind you can buy from Century, you could buy from, from there. As a matter of fact, I think, can't remember if it was Classic Firearms or Century or somebody, uh, actually bought a bunch of these things back, and since they were semi-automatic, brought them back into the country. It had never been used by, they weren't military surplus. And they sold them, uh, this was about uh, 10 years ago, maybe, maybe less, but... You know, so you could you could definitely find stuff like that. Now, if you find stuff like that, then it's kind of your your own uh, your own morality whether or not you return it. Maybe these things are reported stolen. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're reported lost or missing. Maybe they're not. You know, that's all up to you. Um, so that's that's another case where you could open up a case and you could find something and and maybe you could you could keep it. Uh, another case would be would be I think would be very likely is you open it up and you find a bunch of upper receivers. You know, you find the upper receiver, the bolt, the whole the whole gizmo in there, because somehow somewhere someone decided they needed to separate the uppers and the lowers and ship them separately, or at least in separate containers, so they couldn't quote fall into the wrong hands. You know, not not bad thinking in some ways, but you could definitely see that. And, uh, you know, again, are they going to know, is anybody going to know, because an upper receiver is, barreled upper receiver is not a weapon, and it has no identifying marks on it, um, 
but you do run the risk that they somebody could track it down and say hey you know did you ever see any in those boxes did, was there anything else in there <laughs> and so um you know there's other other scenarios that are much more likely than finding full weapons but uh, i would say you know and and this even extends this even extends to uh uh private stuff you buy like you know buy let's just say you buy a, an old trunk at an estate sale you know and it's got it's got junk in it you know and they said hey here's the, the the trunk and all the stuff in it go you know like those old steamer trunks you know the little humpback looking trunks you know and uh stuff like that so maybe you maybe you buy that and it's filled with old clothes and you say sure i'll i'll buy it for whatever the the price is and uh it turns out that in the bottom in an oily rag is a you know 70s vintage smith and wesson model 10 that uh you know is got no bluing left on it or very little maybe a it's a 250 dollar to 500 dollar gun you know depending on the condition and maybe it's sitting in there and nobody knew it was in there and they sold it and nobody nobody really cares that is very possible that is very possible things like that turn up all the time or maybe it's Hey, this is this is a great grandpa's footlocker, and maybe there's a Beretta 1934 in the bottom of it where nobody bothers to look because nobody really cares because it just had a bunch of stinky old uniforms in it, and you know nobody really wanted to bother with that stuff. So um, you could find something like that quite easily. Then it's just on you. It's on you whether or not you go back to the owner and say this was in there and it's yours, or you say finders keepers so it's a very very peculiar thing uh, the 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 problem i have with any and all of that is anything with a serial number could be reported as missing or stolen um you know and that's it that's it oh uh, we did have a friend we did have a friend it was one of my wife's friends her father was a retired uh, fbi special agent and they know that he had two of his he had purchased two of his FBI sidearms but when he passed away nowhere to be found no record of them no anything um, you know that's very interesting and I don't know whatever happened with it um, the because I don't like getting mixed up in other people's business but my recommendation to her was contact the FBI and see if they have the record of the serial numbers and you can report those as missing if you believe they were stolen from your you know your father's estate because they were something that he never would have sold because of the sentimental value and you never found any kind of receipts or anything that would lead you to believe that even in his older age in his final years he decided to you know sell them and just get money because they didn't mean anything anymore you know there's, there was no record like that uh, I have found a record like that I was we were helping uh, a lady who'd been widowed and uh, an acquaintance of mine and I were evaluating her husband had about 25 30 firearms and uh, this lady did you know I don't know what their personal circumstances were but she did not have a lot of money and I mean she was working in her 60s um, to make ends meet and as it turned out we um, 
we were able to sell some of the guns were actually quite valuable and we were actually able to sell them and she was able to you know retire from the menial job she had at daylight donuts that was a really good feeling so we we uh, helped her out with that but we did find a list of the guns her husband owned and lo and behold some of them weren't there and uh, what we did find though for the, the the only one that was worth any money um, which was a Colt SB1 AR-15 with a Colt 3 power scope we did find a receipt where he had sold it he just taken it and sold it and uh, but if we hadn't had that receipt we wouldn't have known where that where that gun went because hey here's the list of guns and here are the guns that are present and they don't they don't match a hundred percent there's some things listed that are not physically present the other thing that was uh, physically not present was a Winchester 97 shotgun that had the barrel I guess the barrel had been damaged and they put a poly choke on it you know you see guns like that occasionally and uh, you know I've assumed that the condition was probably pretty worn and pretty pretty out there so that that probably was at the most a 400 to 500 dollar gun and that was that was missing and we we assumed he probably sold that also just got rid of it but uh anyway uh there's you know had their serial numbers been there had the serial number of that 1897 been there um you know what do you do maybe she would report that stolen maybe she thought hey somebody he loaned it somebody somebody has been in here and has stolen it or some other some other deal and uh you know all of a sudden now that serial number is a hot item and if you go to transfer it or sell it or anything um it could come up stolen and ultimately get traced back to you so it's really um really a very very tricky and very difficult thing when you find quote unquote a firearm that you don't know where where it's been what it's been used for and uh whether or not it's been reported stolen or if it's a government firearm is it in a dat is it lurking in a database and are there investigators trying to find it you know so i would say be very very careful uh, honesty being the best policy um, i would say you could give it all back there are, as i said there are some situations where you might be able to get away with it but you're probably best off just giving it all back as much as it would hurt to do that okay let's go to my favorite part of the podcast which is questions and answers because after all um you know that's one of the best things about this and I am kind of staying away from some of the national news. It's just a little too frustrating to, and so many other people are doing it. So kind of like talking more about gun stuff anyway. Okay, first question. Are 22 caliber conversion kits a good accessory for a 5.56 AR? Um, here's what I would say. Um, um, um. um they, are, they are a very good accessory for a 5.56 AR. Uh, I've had two kits well I have two kits and to show you how old they are they're the original Atchison kits came in the the brown (laughs) plastic thing and they have 10 round magazines and there's one 30 round magazine and um, I used those when I first got my Colt SP1s I first I used those and I've used them since 
Do I shoot them a lot? No. Are they a nice accessory to have? Yes. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. It's nice to be able to shoot subcaliber 22. It's nice to be able to shoot, um, you know, very inexpensively. And it's nice, you know, especially if you are living in an area where you want 5.56 capability sometimes, but there's also small pests and rodents and other things that you need to harvest or control with a 22. You know, it is a way. It is a it is a good way. So um, for people who are survival oriented, I would say that that's also a kind of a cool capability to have. You know, you carry one rifle and, you know, you can shoot two very different calibers out of it. That's that's also very good. I will tell you that there are some what I have discovered to be in my particular case some myths that uh, that I'll do. Number one is is that the uh, there's no accuracy the, the accuracy is poor because 22 long rifle bullets are slightly smaller than 556 rifle bullets and they tend to bounce down the barrel. I have not found that to be true. What I've found to be more true is that at longer range they're less accurate because the rifling twist in a 5.56 AR barrel is not optimal so for 22. So I'll just say that that's that is what it is. Um, another myth is that uh, they lead the barrel like crazy. I have found that they do not although if I'm switching back and forth, I will definitely run a brush down the barrel just to be safe. And the third myth that I have found is that uh, they do not coat the inside of the gas tube with lead particles and lead buildup, which will eventually um, squeeze it off. Now, I have to caveat all this by saying I've not shot thousands and thousands of rounds through it. It's usually been 50 to 100 rounds at a time and I clean the gun and I've never never noticed any of the problems that some people have said there are so I have to assume that uh, you know with moderate you know with moderate use that those problems just do not exist so there you go yes they're a very good accessory and they're yet another argument why 556 is maybe the best AR caliber because you're not going to shoot 22 long rifle out of a 300 blackout that's for sure okay next one have you ever used cartridge conversion cylinders for black powder revolvers um i i have fired them i currently don't own any and the reason i do not own the conversion cylinders are is that number one they're kind of a pain in the butt to load um they're kind of usually rube goldberg things where you, you, of course, have to pop out the cylinder. Then you have to take a plate off the back because the plate holds, you know, usually a firing pin or, or something. And then you have to put them back in, put the cylinder back into the frame and, you know, put reassemble it. Um, also, knocking out the cartridges is kind of a pain. So when it comes to the black powder revolvers, I black powder cap and ball revolvers, I, I don't find them to be just that great. Uh, another problem is is that those revolvers are not made out of the same kind of steel that we're used to in modern cartridge revolvers. Therefore, you have to restrict the loads to target or cowboy level loads. 
and it just seems like it would be way too easy to mix up something else. And I've told the horror story about the guy I caught with a, uh, it was at a competition, caught him with a uh, 1858 Remington cap and ball revolver with a conversion cylinder in it. And he was attempting to put in some 300, God, I think there were 325 grain uh, bear loads made by HSM, which is a high performance ammo manufacturer. And of course, it wouldn't fit in there. The bullet was actually a little too big. And so he was whittling on the end of the bullet to get it to fit. Now, had he been able to accomplish that before being stopped, um, he would have had a grenade on his hands. It would have blown that revolver to pieces because the uh, 45 Colt uh, Remington conversion cylinder is, has just paper-thin walls, just paper-thin. No way it would have withstood that kind of pressure. So I don't use them. I don't find them that convenient. If I'm going to shoot black powder cap and ball, that's what I shoot. Okay, the next one is actually kind of related. Do you ever use single-action revolvers? And if so, for what purpose? Well, I use them for recreation. I love them. I mean, I actually, I, I just enjoy shooting them. Um, they're a lot of fun, whether it's cap and ball or cartridge guns. Cartridge guns are a lot of fun. Uh, the nostalgia, the balance, a lot of the things about them are great. I do have to say there is a line where if I had one, I would feel armed, but I would not feel optimally armed as if I had a double action revolver with a couple of speed loaders. That's just the way that is just the way it is but for most purposes they're they're just fine I would not use one in an urban environment at all I just would not would not do that um, it's just too slow to reload and follow-up shots are slow because you do have to cock the hammer a long way so uh, plus the fact that they most of them are for the ones for major 38 357 and above are are pretty ponderous arms but but yes there is a nostalgia feel to them and i i i like them and uh i just i find that they're they're very very useful um there are certain applications out in the woods and and on the ranch and everywhere else where you can use a heavy hard-hitting revolver that's that's you can carry on your belt and a single action will will do that it'll do that well since we're on a revolver binge uh, next one is do you like 22 revolvers the answer is I, I like them I do not find them as useful as a semi-automatic and uh, actually I inherited a Colt 22 caliber Diamondback which is a beautiful gun absolutely beautiful but the objection I have with 22 revolvers are this they for their weight they're heavy because they're usually modifications of some other type of gun or they're they're kept to us within a certain size envelope which means you have a 22 caliber hole in a much larger barrel now the, while that helps accuracy it also has a lot of weight same thing with the cylinders so you you have a much uh, for its for its power you have a lot of you have a lot of uh, weight there that's all there is to it Another thing I don't care about them for is they require scrupulous cleaning. Um, 22 is kind of a dirty little round in some ways. And um, 
a revolver, especially with a, the tiny chambers of a 22, uh, is susceptible to any any you know the unburnt powder or some leading and things get in there. Um, you know you find you have to clean it out. So it, it is kind of a pain in the butt that way. So I don't really care for them. Um, but my biggest objection is power. Power to weight ratio just isn't there. Okay, the next question. There is a show called Homestead Rescue, which depicts firearms in off-the-grid living. What is your opinion? Well, that's funny, because I saw the star of that show in the airport on my recent trip. Um, first of all, don't believe anything you see on TV. It's, it's And I'm not pointing at this show in particular, but a lot of that is, you know, a lot of that is just it's created to entertain you for 30 or, or 60 minutes. It's not designed to show you any kind of reality. Um, the funny part is I saw the star of the show. He was in the airport. And lo and behold, he was dressed exactly as he is on the show. The white cowboy hat, the white shirt, the blue jeans, cowboy boots. You know, he was dying to be recognized. And he had a group of two or three people around him. And he was talking about the show. And I was like, yeah, yeah, what, whatever, you know. But I do see the only part of the show that really intrigues me is the uh, the firearms use. And there's a couple things. Number one is you never teach, in my opinion, you never teach someone to shoot by handing them a 12 gauge and encouraging them to pull the trigger. Um, there's too many. I don't see any kind of shooting fundamentals going on there. And I realize they're, they're not going to film all that. But they're not even paying lip service to it. Uh, that's that's just bad business. Giving somebody a what they're going to perceive as a heavy recoiling weapon is um, just not going to be uh, have a good outcome. They're going to learn some bad habits. They're going to flinch. They're going to anticipate recoil. They're going to jerk the trigger. All, all these things are bad. Teaching someone on, you can even start with BB guns, but certainly a 22 long rifle is a much better much better venue to start someone shooting. Uh, same thing with a handgun. You just the first time somebody shoots anything, you don't hand them a 357 Magnum. Um, that just that's foolish. Same reasons, it's foolish. The other thing that that kind of uh, strikes me is number one, outside of the the sun when he's going on hunting missions, you don't see anybody there really packing. You know, if I were out on a homestead, especially if it's in an unfamiliar environment, um, I'm gonna put on my my 45 in my leather belt holster and that's what I'm going to walk around with because at least I know I can stop something fairly large with it so that's what that's how that's going to work um, but you notice they don't do that the other thing that I'm not quite sure about and I think they do it because they just have the the, the people they're helping do it but just because you live off the grid doesn't mean that game laws don't apply to you. <laughs> so you can only hunt deer in deer season. You can only hunt other things in their seasons uh, when they're game animals. And so you can't just say, hey, I'm kind of hungry. I'm going to go out and shoot something and do that. Um, I, I don't think that, that that washes most places. Um, I think you might be able to, to do that in Alaska. I'm not sure. But um, down in the lower 48, I think everything is controlled. 
and you just can't go out there and shoot something because you're hungry even though that's a good reason to shoot something but um, I don't think you can actually do that so while I think it they that show portrays firearms in a very positive light which is a good thing um, the reality in reality TV is just not there all right here's another question my wife and I are concerned about the soaring violent crime what can we do well I, I'm not a police guy so I can only give you the common sense that that I can just feel none of this is guaranteed but you know it's basically uh, uh, what I do uh, number one if you live in a and now almost half the states now are uh, constitutional carry if you live in a place where you can either through constitutional carry or a permit carry a firearm you should do so um, this is one of the times I'll tell people go out and get training go out find a reputable trainer and get training and carry if you're worried about it carry the next thing is you structure your life so that you you reduce your risk to crime uh, number one get an alarm system at your house if you can get a dog that will least if it won't protect you it'll at least have the alarm um, have a lot of exterior lighting all those things that people people recommend uh, another thing to do is lower your exposure um, like in the town I live in there's one gas station with a little store you know like they all are now and it's got a lot of sketchy people there so I don't buy gas there because something can could happen there uh, and and you know again I didn't pay much attention to it but I was in there one day buying gas and a couple of people were having a really heated nasty argument and these were not the kind of people who were you know these weren't Harvard graduates I'll put it that way um, one of them could have easily pulled out a gun and started shooting could have easily done that they didn't but they could have <clears throat> so I decided you know this is really not the place I really want to go there's other options that are a lot safer and even if I have to pay a few more pennies a gallon and I know in this time and age it just sticks in your craw to do that but go to a much more secure quieter better station uh, and buy your gas uh, I would also go in the middle of the day because usually people who are gonna get drunk and really stupid um, are either still sleeping <laughs> or or they haven't had enough yet to uh, get them really belligerent so you know do your necessary things as early in the day as you can that way you're not out at the peak time when the crazies are out um, refrain from activities that take you through bad neighborhoods or total exposure um, you know driving through a bad neighborhood you stop at a stoplight you could get carjacked I mean that's that's a deal I kind of like to stay a lot of people don't but I kind of like to stay on the freeways because at least hey you're moving it's hard to, to get my vehicle to stop at 60 miles an hour and do something I mean usually it's just boom by you know it's same with everybody else but when you're on these city streets in a sketchy area hey it's not worth not worth doing you might might never have a problem or you might drive into a big problem so lower your risk and stay out of sketchy areas stay off of uh, sketchy 
sketchy things and you know limit don't go to bars don't don't go to places that have an inherent risk because while it might have been fine in the golden year of 2019 where everything was good um, maybe it's not such a good idea now in 2022 going into 2023 I mean our country has changed quite a bit as Donald Trump said no one is safe in Joe Biden's America and it's all coming true so you know arm yourself lower your risk and take every other protective measure you can and the biggest thing you can do is realize that buying a firearm is not a lucky rabbit's foot that is going to immediately protect you it is simply yet another tool and probably your most effective one uh, when it comes to protecting your person uh, from grievous bodily harm or death at the hands of another so that's what I would do uh, there's there's all kinds of advice on the types of firearms and 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 all the rest of it but and those are those fit individual things but I would say that you know arming yourself having the ability to project deadly force is big as is the ability to reduce risk okay here's another one wish I had the answer when will primers return <laughs> I don't know I hope so soon and I hope that the price has come down I, I mean the last time I saw any primers for sale was online I think it was Brownells and there were you know a hundred uh, small rifle or a thousand small rifle primers were a hundred dollars so there you go um, high pr non availability of primers and super high prices are gonna kill the reloading industry so why the reloading industry does not band together and say we're just gonna build a factory and all it does is produce primers for reloaders I don't know and you know what I would produce here's what I would do I would say I'm gonna produce large pistol no large pistol magnum it's just gonna be large pistol I'm gonna have small pistol magnum slash small rifle and uh, I'd, I'd just go and then I'd, I'd make large rifle. I mean, I, I wouldn't go with a Magnum. I wouldn't try to go with match primers. I would just produce a good quality large rifle primer, a good quality small pistol Magnum small rifle primer, you know, and a uh, large pistol primer. I'd at least start there. Can expand later on but if you get that stuff out on the market at least people can can hand load again so I think that would be the the best thing whether or not that's gonna happen I keep I, every once in a while you see those little phantom press releases that oh somebody's gonna open up a factory dedicated towards producing primers well if they are I haven't really seen it yet and uh, I'm looking eventually I'm gonna run out and you know the, the thing scares me here's the thing scares me is let's just say that you know three months from now primers are now you know reasonably available uh, if they're selling a hundred bucks for a thousand uh, I can't replace my stock of primers that I've been kind of living off of since this nonsense started in 2020 
Um, I've bought a thousand primers in the last two years. That sounds like a lot, but it's not. Um, the reason that that's a problem is uh, I think I paid $79 for a thousand large pistol magnum primers. That's because that's all they had. They had large pistol magnum. And I said, you know what? I don't care. I'll just use them. You know, I, I don't have any large pistol magnum loads I really need these for, but I can use them in lieu of large pistol primers. And I was hesitant. I almost put the box. There was one box left at 79 bucks, and I almost didn't pick it up. I almost said, nah, forget it, man. That's way too much money. Then I looked on the, the upper shelf, and there were a few boxes left of uh, small rifle primers. They wanted 125 for that. So I said, hey, you know what? This isn't so bad. So I, I picked it up, fortunately. But, you know, a thousand primers, you think that's a lot, but it's really not when you when you hand load. And the uh, the bad news is, like, you can get your Lee bullet molds now. So I can mold both rifle and or pistol and some rifle bullets. Uh, I can get powder now. I've got I've got a good supply of powder, good supply of bullets. Uh, I just can't get primers and uh, you know eventually that's going to be a problem I come to a grinding halt but I can't afford to spend two or three thousand dollars to replenish the stock that like I had before this started when primers I, I, I bought primers on sale for fifteen dollars a thousand that's a lot different than a hundred that's a lot different that's one-sixth the cost of what they want for them now so I can't I can't stockpile them away like I was so if this happens again just gonna be out of business just gonna be out of business and you know I'm not sure I'm not sure I'm not sure if the, if the ammo manufacturers don't really want that I mean I, I think on some level they'd like to see hand loading go away and if that's true I will be very very angry with them because I've invested a lot in learning how to do it in the equipment and everything else and um, if it just becomes so prohibitive it's it's getting to the point now where okay um, you can buy 2556 rounds for 10 bucks okay that's 20 primers you know I, I mean it's getting to the point where it's not going to be cost effective to hand load if the primers are incredibly expensive it's just not when you're putting if you're getting something at 50 cents around but your primer is costing you 12.5 cents you know then you got to look at the cost of the bullet and the powder and say what am i where am i coming out on this if I'm coming out at 40 cents a round, or I'm coming out at 30 cents a round, but I can buy them for 50, already assembled, totally good to go, and with a brass case, I'm just sitting there going, hey, man, I don't know. I don't know. I saw one of the most outrageous things. It was in Cabela's. They wanted $270 for 1000 brand new nine millimeter cases just the key just the case not bullets or anything not not anything else but the brass case and i looked at that and i said i i mean you can you can buy a 
a case of ammunition for maybe another $120, $130. Why, why wouldn't you do that? Why would you buy these cases? The other, the other side of coin is you can go to almost any public range and you can pick up all the 9mm brass you want. It's all over the place now. The way 38 Special used to be when, when I was a kid. So you could pick up you could pick up that. Why would you buy it new, at, especially for the, an outrageous price like that? And the answer is, I don't, I don't know who or why or why anybody would do that. But um, it's becoming... You know, obviously prices ain't coming down. And that's one of the reasons I, I started the more bullet casting is, hey man, you know, bullets are probably the single, the bullets or the case are the single most expensive parts of of, of a hand load. And uh, so I need to be melting lead. I need to be, I need to go back into the mode of scrounging some lead, but I need to be going back there and doing that. And uh, that's what's going to, pay off for me um, that's what's going to keep keep my car that's one thing I can do that can control cost at this point so we'll see how it goes um, but nothing's cheap anymore and uh, you know the the lure of hand loading was hey if I have a budget of x dollars I can shoot a thousand rounds with it if I buy factory if I hand load I can shoot five thousand rounds it's not so much that you spend less money, it's that you can shoot more. Now it's getting rapidly approaching the point where it's a wash and maybe your labor and all the effort you put into it, you may as well pay the extra 15 cents around because, you know, 15 cents isn't worth anything in Biden's America, you know, with the double digit inflation we have now. So anyway, um, when will primers be back? I don't know. I hope soon. And I hope that the uh, the cost, if I had to pay $30 a thousand, I would consider myself a lucky man. Lucky, lucky indeed. Okay, well that's it for this edition of Old School Guns. We ran a little short today, but that's because we just did questions uh, for the most of the most of the podcast. And if you have any questions, don't forget, email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com kbmakel at aol.com or you can put them on our podbean comments section and i will get to them but until next time this is old school guns out <laughs>